Welcome to A Higher Way Podcast. This is a place of shared stories and experiences where we have open discussions ranging from subjects like psychedelics, spirituality, astrology. We talk about healing from trauma, divorce, addiction, energy work, the afterlife. We get into family shit and lots more. Each episode is built on the foundation of authentic expression and vulnerability as the keys to living as our most creative and fully expressed selves. Here at A Higher Way with Tay, we believe that healing is an inside job. This morning, I'm here with my dear, dear friend, my teacher, and one of the most interesting people I've ever met, my friend Wolf. Wolf, you have one of the coolest like spiritual resumes ever, by the way. <laughs> I just kind of yeah. refer to you as like a spiritual teacher or or like a medicine man, but you're a lot more than that. Um, you are the spiritual and wellness director over at Pavilion, which is a center for alcohol and drug addiction in Mill Spring, Mill Spring South Carolina, North Carolina, excuse me. Um, and you've been yeah. there 12 years, right? 13. 13. Yeah. So you're an ordained minister. Um, you're a professor of world religion and Chinese history. And you were the spiritual director for the Center of Truth and Vision. You're certified in outdoor education and martial arts. And you guide people in all walks of life, providing spiritual guidance and kind of practical wellness applications for over 30 years. And that's actually an old one. So I think it's up to 40 years. 40 now. <laughs> years. Wow. That's amazing. Well, you know, of course, I looked at your astrology and, you know, it's so interesting to me to see how that lines up exactly with, you know, what you do with your career and kind of your your path. But um, before we get into that, I want to touch real, real quickly on kind of remind you the story about how you and I met. So I've known you a couple years now, and when I um, was going through a period of time where I was like very deep in my spiritual awakening, and um, I had a wonderful therapist at the time, and she and I were, you know, processing a lot of things and experiences that I had had on on again like this spiritual path, this spiritual awakening that I was having, and you know she. I wouldn't describe her as like super woo woo um, or even like a deeply spiritual necessarily. And so I remember at one point in time, she said like, look, I, I feel like I'm can hold space for you as your therapist in it in like a, the appropriate way. But there's like this whole other level of spiritual support that I think you need that I'm just not like the right guy for, <laughs> you know, like I feel like I, I wish I could connect you with somebody that could provide sort of like this additional level of spiritual support that you need outside of just like normal cognitive behavioral therapy. So she asked me, she was like, I have a friend, another therapist who works in this office and she's a little bit more woo-woo, <laughs> I guess. Um, and she said, is it okay if I just, you know, ask her like what resources she may have or, or what connections she could offer? So of course I said, yes. And then she came back to me and she said, Wolf, this lady said, you need to talk to Wolf. So she gave me your contact information and I reached out and just kind of said like, hey, you know, um, this is what I'm going through. This is sort of where I am in life. And, um, you know, I've heard that that you can help me. And since then, I mean, oh, my gosh, you've been just an overall a wonderful dear friend, um, but also a, an incredible teacher and um, 
you have just helped me so much and continue to on this path and this road. And I just love the layers of um, spirituality that you, you bring. And a lot of it is, you know, Native American medicine. Um, but we talk about all kinds of, of medicine and all kinds of spirituality. And I'm just very grateful to, to know you and to call you a friend and call you a teacher. Thanks. Of course. Um, and you know, what, what's fascinating, um, so that the audience doesn't know this. So we are really close. Um, I'm close with you. I feel like I, I'm close with your son yep. and yet we haven't physically ever met. I know. <laughs> Which is funny because I, like I, for I forget that, <laughs> that we've never met in, right. in person. But, you know, every time we say that, I remind you, maybe not in this life yet, because we I think we definitely right. have had other lives together for sure. Um, and that's also definitely. just because, again, you're in North Carolina. I'm in South Carolina. Um, but we have our Zooms and we have like our Zoom groups. So we see each other's faces and and we chat and all that. But um, before we started yeah. recording, we were saying like maybe doing a part two of this this episode and, and actually doing it in person, maybe here in Charleston this summer. That sounds yes, fun. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So I, you know, pulled your astrology. I took a look at it and I know you had mentioned like, look, <laughs> I've had my chart read before, but I don't really get it. So don't put me on the spot with a bunch of astrology stuff. So I'm going to keep it really simple. Um, but you know, you are a Sagittarius sun, which I'm sure you knew, but you're also a Sagittarius rising and you have a Pisces moon. Um, so Sagittarius obviously is a fire sign. So you've got fire sun, a fire rising, and then you have this beautiful Pisces moon, which is water. Um, you have your moon in the fourth house. I also have my moon in the fourth house. And I think that, that the fourth house is home and family. So if you can imagine the moon being like this beautiful, like emotional, sort of feminine, internal, like emotions, and then having it in the fourth house, I th feel like just makes you like, I, I think that helps me be a good mom. So I can see that it also makes you be like a good and natural father having that placement in the fourth house. Um, mm -hmm. But all this Sagittarius, you know, Sagittarius is awesome. It's like nomadic and adventurous, but it's very philosophical. Um, and I've heard an astrologer say before that Sagittarius is like the map of human consciousness. So Sagittarius will journey to the end of the earth in search of answers, you know, and, and, and I think considering your background, especially like the level of education and study you have with spirituality, that's so fitting. That makes perfect sense. Um, but, you know, I looked at your, your nodes, so your South node and your North node. And I have said on the podcast before that the North node is like what we're evolving towards in this lifetime. And the South node is kind of like some past lives and some traits and qualities that we've come into this life carrying. Um, so your South node, which is what you've brought into this life from previous lifetimes is in Taurus in the sixth house, which to me shows many lifetimes as a healer or a medicine man, no question. Um, but also your North node, which is in Scorpio is in the 12th house. And that again is like, this is a, the path of a medicine man to me without question. Um, Scorpio is intense and it's about like merging forces and Scorpio's like ultimate mission is to learn to withstand the cycles of desiring, having, and losing. 
So if you can imagine Scorpio, it's symbolized by the Phoenix, right? I mean, it's super spiritual. And then in the 12th house, which is the house of spirituality, which is the house of, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's, I wasn't surprised at all to, to say the least by seeing, seeing all this in your natal chart. So does, does any of that resonate with you? Uh, pretty much all yeah. of it. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I have to say two of my favorite placements on there was your Pisces moon, because like I said, Sagittarius is all this fire, but then you have this beautiful watery moon, um, which gives it such perfect balance. Um, and in such a spiritual sign too, but then that South node and Taurus in the sixth house, like there's just no question. This is not your first lifetime as, as a spiritual teacher or a medicine man. Well, and I think as you know, I know part of this is we're going to tell a little bit about the my my background, uh -huh. but um, it, I didn't have a choice. Yeah. Well, let's you get know, right into that. Side. Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. So, um, so I'll start at the beginning. So I grew up Catholic. Mm -hmm. Grew up in Western Canada. Um, at the age of probably ten, I'm guessing because I don't remember exactly, but. Um, I was an altar boy and I had to go up and check like the holy water and check the upstairs and everything. So I was up there by myself. And at one point I turned around, I was at the front doors and I turned around and I looked up at the crucifix and I got just super emotional and fell to one knee and said, I'm here. I know I have, I'm here for a purpose. And I'm going to, I'm like, I committed myself at the age of 10. And at that point, I thought I was going to be a priest. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was what I committed in my mind, because that's all I knew. Mm -hmm. um, super emotional. From that point on, you know, I did the whole Catholic thing and, and um, went to Catholic school and the whole bit. Um, was really seriously thinking of the idea of being a priest at that stage in my life. Um, was a gymnast, 15 and a half, broke my back, um, paralyzed for a couple months, um, went through a spinal fusion, went through a year of learning how to walk again. Um, I also, that triggered a bunch of addiction, which is, I have a lot of uh, addiction stuff on my dad's side of the family. Mm -hmm. Uh, alcoholism. And so, and you know, I, I couldn't be a gymnast anymore and I'd miss school. So I just literally hit the street and went mm -hmm. in completely the other direction. <laughs> um, you know, one, one direction was trying to reach up to heaven and the other direction I headed for mm -hmm. health. So, um, so that carried on really intensely for um, about almost three years. And when I say intense, I'm talking gang related stuff, lots of drugs, mm -hmm. lots of fighting, um, you know, very, very scary time. If I look back mm -hmm. um, and um, I was, I came off of a really bad trip was sitting um, watching a TV show and it was about the Northwest Territories of Canada. At that time, the, there was just, there was the Yukon and the Northwest Territories. Now they've divided the Northwest Territories up into, um, giving it back to the uh, indigenous people. So it's got different names. Um, and I was like, I have to go there. 
and realizing that my life had been gotten really crazy. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I talked a friend into going, we got to outside a little place called Fox Creek, Alberta. It was 21 below. Oh God. It was right before my 18th birthday. And, um, the friend of mine's name was Cecil. He frostbit his feet. So I helped him back into town and he just said, I can't do this. Um, he called his parents to come and get him. And I was like, I, I just, one is I can't go back. I had a bad relationship with mainly my dad was the big part, mm -hmm. but then I had all this other, you know, gang related stuff that I knew was not in. And, and uh, I'd done some stuff that they were after more after me than being part of the gang at that mm -hmm. point. That's a whole nother, you know, journey anyway. Yeah. Um, so, um, I got a job at a truck stop, um, fixing truck tires. I had kind of a background with cars and trucks and stuff like that and bar every night. And one night while I was sitting at the bar, this guy, uh, sat down next to me and I can see him to this day. So this is over 40 years. This is 40, 45 years ago, something like that. Anyway, he had a wool hat on, long black hair, a black beard, uh, kind of a black and red lumberjack kind of shirt. And we got talking and, and I was telling him that I was going to go to the Northwest Territory. He said, oh, no, no, no. You need to come to the Yukon. And I live in a little town called Carcross. Carcross means caribou crossing in the native tongue. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you would know somebody up there. And his name was Ted Abbott. And so I'm like, okay. So I worked, got myself a bus ticket, got to a corner stop. Um, now, you got to remember, this is in the middle of winter in the Yukon Territories. There was a place called, this is a little funny story. There was a place called Jake's Corner. And I banged on the, the bus drop, bus driver literally dropped me off on the Alaska highway at this corner at like 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold. And so I banged on the door of this place called Jake's Corner and this character came out and he opened the door and said, what? And I said, um, can I use your bathroom to um, uh, change into some warm clothes? And he said, what are you going to buy? And I said, well, I'm not going to buy anything. And he said, we can't use the bathroom. You should buy something. And I was pretty much argumentative at that point in my life. Mm -hmm. And so I um, went across the road over a snowbank and there was a little kind of broken down shack there. And I changed. And as I came out, I heard this noise and I looked up and there was a man standing, a native indigenous guy with a cowboy hat on, long underwear and boots, looking at me saying, are you okay? And so I met my first native friend. His name was Billy Sam. He had a cabin on the other side of the road. So he invited me over and, and helped get me sort of situated and actually got me to this little town called Carcross. Um, which is a very small town and come to find out that this person, Ted Abbott, nobody had ever heard of him. Mm. So I still, 
they question whether that was um whether he was really real or not the guy with the wool cap yeah mm -hmm. yeah um so you never so found anyway, ted abbott never found interesting him. nobody ever heard of him <laughs> but what happened was it put me into car cross um, I stayed in a little cabin outside of Carcross. There was no work. I knew nobody. I pretty much had no money. I started, there's a hotel there. I started pawning things like my rifle and my backpack and stuff like that. And the owner of the hotel, I was talking to him and he said, oh, I just heard about a guy that's got some horses down on a lake that needs somebody to take care of the horses for the winter. And so he gave me this man's name. His name was jack johnson and he was native and um he was a clinket elder and so i called him and he said yeah he said i'll meet you so i got a, a ride with a milkman and i got a ride with somebody else and met him at this corner we got in the truck and we drove just miles and miles on a dirt road to this little trailer on a lake that had eight horses and a pole barn. And um, so we spent the day together and he was asking me all kinds of questions. And, and you know, I was off the street, so I was, you know, and I was, knew I didn't have any money. So I was basically BSing my way the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really know the front end of a horse or the back end of a horse at that time. <laughs> and um, so at the end of the day, he said, well, I will hire you and teach you everything I know. And I didn't really know what that even meant in one condition. And I said, what's that? And he said, you never bullshit me again because everything that's become out of your mouth is a bunch mm -hmm. of crap. So, you know, I was a little shocked, no place to go, you know, this sort of thing. So, um, so anyway, we established this um, relationship and I started working for him. And the first part of it he would come out and he would teach me things so i learned over a course of six years i learned trapping fishing um hunting building cabins taking care of horses um tracking um you know for so all this kind of outdoor stuff mm -hmm. um and it was a couple of years so the first um, I was out there for about five and a half months and then he came and he brought me a bunch of clothes and, and gave me some money and said, why don't you go to town? So he took me into Whitehorse and, uh, which is the bigger town. And, you know, from an addiction standpoint, I went on a four day drum. Mm -hmm. uh, he came and got me, took me back out to the land. Um, I got sobered up. And uh, this was an ongoing process for about two years where I'd go to town and get drunk and come back and I'll catch up to that part of the story. But um, every time I would be, there was a big spruce tree and every time I would be upset over something, he would say, go sit under that tree and talk to the tree. Mm. And so the journey was really around um, because I was out also out there. He wasn't living out there with me. He would leave me out there for a week or two mm -hmm. and, um, you know, with food and stuff and give me little jobs to do. And, um, and so I had to be with myself the whole time. And I've, 
I still to this day believe that the real strong spiritual work is to learn about being a human being. Yeah. And, 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 and what's really going on inside. Um, lots of stories with, with Jack. I mean, we could spend a whole hour talking about him. He was a, a blanket shaman. Um, his wife, Dorothy, um, was a, um, Gwich'in, which is another small tribe up there. Um, the Clinkets are, are a big, much bigger tribe. He never really taught me much about the culture, a little bit of stories. But two years into, the first two years was about me getting sober, finding myself, getting grounded, learning to live off the land, being able to, you know, totally be comfortable with all of that. And then about two, two and a half years, he told me that a couple of years before I got there, the spirits had told him that I was coming. Mm. So, you know, from the time I was 10 all the way through, so now I'm, you know, in my twenties at this stage, um, um, you know, my, my life is being pushed in a direction to do what I do today, which is, you know, work with people spiritually. So. Right. So do you feel like, um, during that time with him, when you were kind of like getting sober and, you know, learning the lay of the land out there, were you learning from him much about, you know, other than him telling you to go sit under the tree, like, were you getting any glimpses of ceremony or, you know, ritual or that side of their culture? Um, really not at all. It wasn't until, um, I got went into, so he had a town, well, he had a house, um, outside of town, not where I was living. And, um, he, um, invited me in and it was interesting. His, um, he had a, a, a back room with a curtain across it that had a bunch of, um, motif, like it was a curtain of motif, like native motif stuff up there. And, um, in that back room was where he would bring people and work with them and do ceremony. And he, he was really, his main thing was, was doctoring. Um, I never went to a, um, I never actually went to a clinket ceremony. Uh, I didn't go to a, uh, so the native, the indigenous people on the West coast have um, a ceremony called the potlatch. And I didn't actually go to that until I um, left the Yukon and got down onto Vancouver Island and um, met some other people. But he started talking to me about the um, aspect. It was after a couple of years, he started talking to me about the aspect of the idea that there was a spirit world and that there was more to spirituality than religion um and that um the he started talking to me about the idea that everything on the earth has a spirit and that we have a way that we can communicate with that so that tree that i was talking to was actually talking back to me the whole time mm -hmm. and it become my teacher um because the spirit of the tree had become my teacher mm-hmm and that was how that we needed to learn um, 
these kinds of you know how to how to live on the land right and how to um find find your way in life so at, and, at um, what point did you really start getting more into like studying about spirits and the spirit world and deepening that that study so i so uh jack and dorothy passed away again like i said i could tell you a whole we spent a whole hour just on the, my life up mm -hmm. there um he did do a um a, a plunging ceremony with me um where i cut a hole in the ice and um went into the water um and um that was and then did a ceremony where he did a they did a, a adoption ceremony and um, well hold on go back to the plunge ceremony for a second are you saying like okay. i mean you go under into the freezing water and and do you are you what what happens with that so we went out with a snowmobile out to the lake and the the ice up there is anywhere from three to five feet thick mm -hmm. in the middle of winter so you have to take a chainsaw cut a hole um chip it out with a bar shovel it out and then sometimes go in the hole and cut another saw blade oh my full. god <laughs> and so um and so what ended up happening was he took a um uh it was a rope and it had a kind of a leathery harness that he put around my under my arms and around me it had a hook on the back of it and Jack wasn't a big man, but he was pretty strong. And um, so then he took out an um, an eagle wing out of a bag and uh, eagle feather wing, mm -hmm. and um, and did a song and did a ceremony and washed me with the eagle feathers. And I kind of went into a kind of an altered state. And then he told me to get in the water, and I got in the water, took a deep breath. Um, I guess passed out. Right. I was going <laughs> to say, did you lose consciousness? Because I imagine that you would in that cold of water. Yeah. And what I don't, um, I don't have any record. So like, you know, I've done other ceremonies where I've got had visions and stuff like that. I don't have other than, um, waking up back in the cabin in my sleeping bag with a bunch of blankets on me. Um, so he obviously got me out of the water or I got out of the water and got back on the snowmobile and got back to the cabin. I have absolutely no memory from the time I entered the water till the time I woke up in the cabin. So is this like a coming of age type of ceremony or what's the purpose behind it? Yeah, I think it was a coming of age. It was a rites of passage. And I, what he told, what he did tell me is that all the things that all my gifts and everything that I know was already inside me. And he just had to open the door. Mm. Beautiful. And so, you know, you talk about, it's interesting when you were talking about the, um, um, the past lives, mm -hmm. the astrology stuff. Yeah. Um, basically I think that's what happened. Now I look back at it. He just, you know, cause he said, I just opened the door. It's all right. It's all right there. Right. You just have to, re you just have to relearn it and remember. Yeah. Yeah. To remember to, well, he used the term relearn. Yeah. 
Which, so. which makes sense. I mean, again, going back to that South node in Taurus and the sixth house, like, you know, I'm sure what he was seeing was th that your gifts from lifetimes past, you know? So do you feel like he, how did he, you know, cultivate that in you? Like, how did he provide guidance on that path for you? He, he really, all he, the, the conversation was, okay, now the doors are open. Um, you know, I don't remember the exact words, but basically the doors are open, you know, you already know what you need to do and you need to start listening. I remember him saying, you need to start listening. And I said, like, what, what do you mean listening? And he said to creation. Mm -hmm. And, um, he wasn't a real talkative person. Mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting. I've had a few elders that where I've had these powerful experiences and then they, they don't explain it. Native call native people don't always get, they don't, they're not in, intellectual the way that we are. Mm -hmm. My elders, a lot of times have been, you know, okay, this happened. Now you have to understand it. You have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. the, it's not an intellectual process. So they're not, they're not the kind of people that sit down and explain things to you when you have an experience like that. Right. And I found that to be true throughout most of my interaction with my native elders. So tell me more about the native elders that you had on your path, the influential ones and how you started, you know, studying more about the spirit world. Right. So long story. Once it, it was interesting, once this happened, it was like every time I turned around, there was a native person in my life somewhere. Right. Well, the door was so, open, right? Uh, I mean, right. Yeah. So I met I met people in the indigenous cultures um, in on Vancouver Island when I left the Yukon Territories after Jack and Dorothy had passed. Um, not not medicine people, but just native people, um, indigenous First Nations, and then um, long story, I ended up in coming out to Eastern United States um, and then moved down to Virginia and um, heard about a guy by the name of Sunbear that was doing a big what they call the medicine wheel gathering um, in um, and lots of people probably can remember Sunbear. There was controversy around him because he was teaching white people. There was a lot of that. Mm -hmm. He had this vision of building medicine wheels across the world and trying to connect community. And so I went to my first one there um, and actually ended up meeting him. And then he introduced me to a lady by the name of Twala Nitch, who was a Seneca grandmother, lived up on the Cataraugus Reservation. And fascinating enough, there was like controversy around some of these people. So, you know, Twyla was, her great-grandfather was a man named Moses Shango. She lived on the reservation. She was teaching white people and she was teaching ceremony. A lot of controversy around, you know, was she really teaching or was she making it up and, mm -hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, so I, I spent time um, off and on with Sunbear over the years. I did some traveling with him, went to some of these medicine wheel gatherings um, lost my first child. Um, my wife and I lost my first child. We were living in Virginia and, um, I'd gotten to know 
Twyla and, and Sunbear pretty well. And I called her just for some support. And she said, well, you need to come up here and live. Mm -hmm. So we sold the house and we moved to the Seneca reservation outside of Buffalo, New York. So I lived on the Cataragus reservation for about a year and a half. And she was traveling and teaching. And through that process, I kept meeting different native elders. Um, so Sunbear was one. I spent some time on the road with him learning about medicine wheels and about the pipe ceremony. Um, met another elder by the name of Wallace Black Elk and Grace Spotted Eagle. Um, he started teaching me about the, um, the Lakota Sweat Lodge. Yes, I'd love for you, if you could, touch on both the pipe ceremony and the Lakota Sweat Lodge for people that don't know what those are. The the medicine wheel and the sweat lodge, well, the, you The say? pipe ceremony, especially, and the, and oh, the, the sweat lodge, ceremony. yeah. So the pipe ceremony is a, um, it, although they're um, like the Cherokees and, and some of the other tribes have pipes, the Crow Nations, not all tri um, indigenous tribes have the pipe ceremony, mm -hmm. but the Lakota is the most common that people know. And the pipe represents um, the it, grandpa of Wallace used to call it the telephone to the creator. Oh, I love that. Um, but it, it is, so you make prayers with the tobacco the stone. The most common stone is a red stone called Catlinite which is um, harvested in a place called Pipestone, Minnesota, which is the only place in the world that they've ever found catlinite. Oh, wow. And there's all kinds of, um, there's, there's kind of legends around how the stone got there. Um, and, um, and it is, it is a protected, it is pretty much owned by some most native uh, Lakota um people have families have like sites there where they can go and um, mine the stone. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, the stone is red and the stem is, you know, made out of wood and you make prayers when you load the pipe. And usually the tradition is that you load the pipe offering tobacco to the seven jet, what we call the seven different directions. So, um, everything that lives above us, the earth mother, the four directions and the creator. And you put a tobacco mixture in there. And one thing that, you know, people always say when I talk about the pipe ceremony, they're like, well, what are you smoking it? <laughs> it's, it really is a, usually an herbal mixture, um, just like tobacco and certain like red willow bark, and, mm -hmm. um, depending on, on again, the culture and, and where it comes out of, um, and so those prayer, those offerings go in. And then when you are doing any kind of ceremony, you're doing a sweat lodge, you're doing a sun dance and the pipes are out there. Um, the prayers are all going into the pipe. And then when you smoke it, you dedicate it to the seven directions again. And then it's believed that you, as the smoke comes out of the bowl of the pipe, it carries your prayers to the creator and the smoke that comes out of the stem is considered the breath of the creator. So you bless yourself with the smoke, you kind of blow the smoke in your hands mm -hmm. and, um, and then wash yourself with it. And it's, 
it's a very, very old ceremony. Now I spent time with a Cherokee elder and, um, and then another Crow elder, and I'll talk about them in a minute, but they also had pipe ceremonies and, um, it's, it's a way of praying tobacco is tobacco is sacred to the native people. Mm -hmm. It, it was a gift given by the creator to use as, uh, as a way of praying. And um, all Native people I've ever met view tobacco as sacred. Even 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 people that smoke cigarettes. So when I um, I'll go to the Sundance in a little bit. But when I Sundance, like with the Crow Nation, um, they would give you cigarettes to pray with. Um, I love that's one of the things that you've taught me is you know the sacredness of tobacco and using it in offering and in ritual. And it's been so beautiful for me to learn. I've never heard the description and detail like that of the pipe ceremony. And it's so beautiful to hear what an incredible ritual. And I love the special stone that's used and, you know, the prayers going straight to the creator from the pipe. I, I think that's amazing. And I don't know if you remember, but when I first reached out to you and, you know, sort of asked for your guidance, you told me that you were going to do a little pipe ceremony and see kind of what it is that I, I needed, what you could do to support me. Um, and then I remember you came back after you had done the, the pipe ceremony and, and gave me some, some suggestions and some things that had come up. And I just have always been so fascinated by it because it, it just sounds so, meaningful and and special and and i now that i understand the sacredness of tobacco and its use in these type of rituals um it's a it's fascinating to me well the one thing that i th that i think we've lost um culturally and when i say we i'm i'm talking about pretty much the, the world because mm -hmm. <laughs> um you know native cultures thousands of years ago so not more recent but um, they, the, I, the concept is, is that everything in the natural world is sacred. Mm -hmm. There is no, so, you know, tobacco is just one thing that's sacred. Um, for instance, when we put together our pipe tobacco mixture, so there's something called red willow bark that a lot of people use, or, um, sometimes they, there's a plant they call kinnikinnik out here and and they or bayberry i should say and they um those are sacred plants every every plant has a spirit and so therefore everything has a sacred purpose behind it which um will kind of go to the sweat lodge so the other the other thing that i've been trained in is is doing sweat lodge ceremonies which um if you don't know what that is it's you you dig a hole in the ground and that's where the rocks are going to go. And then you build a frame out of usually willow, um, unless you live on the East coast, like where I live, I usually end up using maple or something. You have to use tr small saplings that bend easily and you make kind of a dome structure and then that's covered in blankets. And then there's a fire pit outside in which you heat, rocks and then you take them into that pit pour water on it create steam so it's kind of like a steam bath except that there's a huge amount of ceremony and ritual to it um and 
So for instance, you're talking about everything being sacred. Um, when you gather the stones for the sweat lodge, when you take the saplings down, you ask permission to take the saplings down um, and to give their life for the ceremony. Um, you um, do that with the stones and ask the stones to bring their, well, what we call the stone people, um, to bring their knowledge into the lodge. Um, you pray to the water nation that you pour on it. You pray to the herbs that you put on it. Um, you honor all those things because they're all medicines and they're all sacred. Mm -hmm. And um, the the sweat lodge is is um, there's a lot of ritual around the sweat lodge. A lot of so some there's there's songs, there's prayer songs. Now what's interesting is people are probably most people are familiar with Lakota sweat lodges. Um, because those are kind of the big ones that people were taught and they're kind of the ones you have to remember the whole history that as um, the Europeans moved across the country and didn't allow the native culture to, to have their rituals and ceremonies, a lot of the Eastern tribal cultures lost their ceremonies and some of them didn't have um, sweat lodges. Um, and then the sweat lodge, for instance, in the Lakota tradition and in the Crow tradition are totally different. Um, there's still a dome shaped structure, but the, the hole is in a different way in a different place. Um, I've been up to, um, the Yakima, um, reservation up in Washington state, their sweat lodges are built differently. The concept, though, is always the same. It's the entering of the womb of the Earth Mother mm -hmm. and um, purifying yourself um, in front of the Creator, so that you can be um, walk out of there and kind of rebirthed in a as a better person. Yes, I love that. I was fortunate enough to have an experience in a traditional sweat lodge in Sedona, Arizona. A couple of years ago and i can definitely say that that is how it felt for me was very much you know the idea of sort of going underground and into the to the heart of the earth mother like you said and then you know while you're down there experiencing a variety of emotions you know fear panic i mean it's so hot it's like we would get down on our hands and knees and be kind of sucking up the cool air straight from the dirt but beneath you know um but then when you and, and there's prayers happening and there's you know um the water being poured on the rocks and and you understand like this is a ceremony and then when it was over and you come out and you have that first breath of that cool air and you know you see the sun and it's it's an incredibly purifying experience physically but emotionally and spiritually as well yeah the one thing that um, that people don't understand though, is that the, the sweat lodge is a, a, a very powerful ceremony. It's emo, it's psychologically powerful. It's spiritually powerful. It's physically powerful. And I've run across lots of people that either decide they're going to do a sweat lodge or whatever, and really don't understand, um, that whole ceremony around it, 
Um, they don't really honor it. They haven't had the proper training. So it can be a little bit dangerous too. Right. Absolutely. Um, so any, anybody that's listening, I don't recommend you just run out to a sweat lodge because somebody's doing one. Cause yes. there's a lot of people out there not trained properly. I agree. And I think that applies to all sorts of ceremony, spiritual ceremony in general, you know, you can't just, um, attend these with, with just anyone. Right. So tell me right. about sun dancing. Cause I know you had mentioned that briefly, but explain what that is. So the sun dance is another ceremony, mostly, um, on the, in the Western Plains, um, tribal systems and they, um, so somebody sponsors a Sundance um, for a reason, and then you commit to that dance. And usually you commit at least to, if you're going to commit to a dance, you usually commit four times mm -hmm. to a dance. And, um, and so it's then people come together and a big arbor is built. And again, the, the Lakota Sundances are different than the Crow Sundances. Um, and which I've done both. And what it's, the idea is that you're going in there to pray for whatever the purpose is, as well as giving yourself away for more prayers and the greater cause sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in, it's usually, um, the crows do have a three day, but most of the time the Sundances are four days. Um, you get up and you do ceremony and make prayers at sunrise and you go up to the center of the tree. So if there's a center tree, um, which represents the cre creator and the creation. And so it's kind of reaching up to the creator. You go up to the center pole and you make your prayers and then you dance your prayers. And um, most of them are four days. No food, no water is the traditional way. Um, although that's gotten a little lax over the years on some Sundances, so I've been told. Um, and you're praying for those prayers. So you make a prayer and you dance your prayer, however long that takes. Um, a lot of times, so in the Lakota dances, they also do something called a piercing ceremony. Well, that's what I was going to say, because for some reason, I think when I first heard about sun dancing, I have this image in my mind of like, hooks in the skin or something. Yeah. So, um, years ago they used to, um, uh, pierce you with an E. Um, and, um, you put a, you put a wooden stake, uh, you take a little wood piece of wood, usually ash and you heat it so that it doesn't break. The medicine person cuts, um, a space in in your chest that that fits between the skin. And then that's tied to a, a kind of a, a thong or a rope that goes back to the tree and you walk up to the tree and as you dance back, you pull and you keep doing that till eventually you break. The idea with that one is that the only thing that we own are our physical bodies mm -hmm. and that you're giving part of your physical body and your blood away for your prayers. That's um, beautiful. Now that tends to be more Lakota Cheyenne, um, the Crow, the Arapaho and Shoshone that also have a Sundance. Um, 
don't really pierce. They, they do have a piercing ceremony. If you're invited into like a, say a medicine society or something, there's a little bit of difference mm -hmm. there, which is um, not done as a whole group. It's a single thing where you go out by yourself and you're tied to a tree um, and you dance um, in giving yourself back so that you can um, it's like a commitment to that. Right. Um, so there was a medicine person by the name of Martin Highbear that had a vision that Mount Hood was going to explode. And so he created a Sundance at the base of Mount Hood for four years. Um, and that was my first Sundance experience. Um, and, um, and then, um, I, when I, I ended up on the crow, um, at a crow Sundance, um, again, this is a kind of a magical story. I was coming back from Western Canada. I was at a powwow in Northern Montana on the Blackfoot reservation and just had a dream. I woke up with this dream sort of, um, you need to follow the red road. And of course, you know, the native, the native path is called the red mm -hmm. road, but, um, this is back in the days before GPS, um, yeah. so we had paper maps. And the red roads were like the little side roads. So I told my wife, I said, we got to go south, but we got to stay on the red on, on the red roads for whatever reason. So we drove literally from the northern end of Montana to the southern end and got to the southern end, came around a corner and there was a crow Sundance going on. And so I knew enough. So I pulled up and they were on a break and there was a young boy sitting on a chair at the opening and I went up and I, I grabbed some stuff, some gifts out of the car. What's really funny is the only thing I had in my truck was when, when the car was truck was I had some tobacco and some sweet grass and some cornmeal. And so I grabbed all these things and went up to the young guy that was sitting there. And I said, I, I was wondering if I could offer some gifts or who I need to talk to about staying here and just praying just to be on the outside, not to be part of the mm -hmm. dance, just in support. And he said, well, let me go get uh, my grandpa. So he runs in and, and this little guy comes out, but his name was uh, Tom Yellowtail. Mm -hmm. He was a Sundance chief for the Crow Nation. And he comes out. And so I talked to him and everything. And he says, yes, you know, you can stay here and pray. And I give him the gifts. And he starts walking back towards where he was resting and he turns around, he holds the cornmeal up. Now you gotta remember these are this, these are people that it was like the second day they were fasting. They weren't supposed to be eating or anything. And I'd handed him food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so he held it up and said, you know, um, well, I'll maybe make myself some corn, corn pancakes, or I don't know. I can't remember exactly something like that. And he kind of laughed and I was like, Oh my God, I like messed this up. <laughs> But anyway, long story short, um, he invited me in to help do some healing and actually work on the dancers in between a break, which was absolutely just, you know, like a, a, a total, uh, at that point, I'd already been working with elders and learning about healing and learning about ceremony and stuff. And um, so I went in and worked on the dancers and, um, and then he uh, asked me to invite me back to the Sundance the next year. And so I danced um, in the Crow Nation with the Crows. Um, so every summer I would go out 
to the reservation. I would leave um, as soon as school was out and I would spend the whole summer out on the Crow Reservation um, learning. I learned about doctoring. I learned about Crow ceremony. Um, I learned about their sweat lodge, um, Sundanced helped out, did all those kinds of things. So, was it there with um, the crow when you sort of either started learning or deepened your study and understanding about spirit guides and spirit animals? No, that all started way back up on the Seneca reservation, really. Um, that was my first exposure. This was already, um, so let's see, this was probably 10 years into, um, probably six years of being on the path at this point, not counting the Yukon territories. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I traveled um, on the road with Sun Bear and Wallace and lived on the Seneca Reservation. All of that opened up really starting on the Seneca Reservation and then um, just different native cultures and people that I was around um, and people that would, um, you know, I started doing fasting or vision questing with some people going up in the mountains. I would go up uh, four times a year and fast and pray for four days and four nights, no food, no water. And I would do that every season. Um, and I did that for probably eight years as well as Sundance during the summertime. Mm. So um, it was pretty intense. Um, and like I said, I was on the road. Um, I was with different elders. I came, I was invited to come down to North Carolina actually um, with a, a person I had met and brought me down. And there was a man here by the name of Hawk Little John that was a Cherokee medicine man. And I even spent time with him and did some Cherokee ceremonies, did a plunging ceremony and what they call a scratching ceremony, which is kind of a giving away again, where they, they have this comb, this kind of sharpened comb made out of bone. And you go into the river, what they call the long human being, um, you purify, you come out and then the person um, does these scratches on your arms, sometimes on your back, sometimes on your chest, sometimes all the above, um, with the idea of releasing negative energy and then also giving back. The concept of sort of that we own, you know, this body is about the only thing we own and by giving pieces of it back or, or creating a level of sort of harshness around it, to give back um, for either our prayers or to ask for guidance um, is pretty common in lots of native cultures around the world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I have heard that concept across a couple different cultures as well. And I, I do love the idea and just like the sweat lodge too, there's the the act of purifying the physical vessel, you know, but the, the intention is the same of, you know, releasing the prayers and opening ourselves to the creator. Yeah. Well, you know, part of it is uh, just from a spiritual standpoint, just the path itself, whatever that is to people. Um, the thing that gets in the, so, you know, spirituality, God, the creator, 
the force out of star wars the dao out of taoism like it already all exists the only thing that gets in the way is us right and so these ceremonies are designed to for us to get out of our own way right that's why i have to do them all the time <laughs> right right that's the whole purpose yep. is that we we get in our own way so can you talk about, you know, it, I think nowadays people will be like, oh, you know, I, my spirit animal is a ladybug or, you know, mine. But but there is a deeper meaning in a lot of these cultures about having an, animal totems that guide or offer wisdom, support, protection, lessons, you name it. Um, what is the process of learning perhaps what yours are, or um, can you explain a little bit about how that was taught to you? Yeah. So there's, there's a, um, you know, there's kind of, I want to say it's more of a, a, a new age movement right. about spirit animals where people draw a card or um, most of the time when you have a, a, an animal that comes to you from a spiritual standpoint or, or any kind of a guide, it comes through some ceremony. Um, it's not that you just, you know, kind of like um, or gravitate. The idea yeah. Is, yeah, you know, the idea when I grew up uh, in, in Catholicism, the idea that we had a guardian angel was pretty common mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And then when I started hearing that it, from, from the very beginning, that in the native world, they believe that you had, um, that the animal um, kingdom also was connected to the spiritual world and that you could connect to certain animals from a spiritual stand standpoint and they would, um, you know, teach you. And um, I believe you can call now I, you know, my, my personal belief is that you can sit and, and sort of call something in if that's your belief system and ask for guidance and help. Mm -hmm. And I believe that we have an, uh, a, a spirit animal that probably has been around us. Sometimes it can even be domestic. Um, you know, an animal that kind of shows up that's connected to our spirit. Um, my, my first experience was actually, um, so I prepared for a year. Um, this was my first Sundance um, when I got invited by Grandpa Tom to come back to the Crow Nation. I prepared for a year, did all the ceremonies, got out there, helped build the arbor and everything. And the person that was sponsoring it, that was, um, so Grandpa Tom was the Sundance chief and he was the one running it, but the sponsor was the one that was responsible, uh, made a decision in the last minute that he was not going to have any white people in the arbor, mm -hmm. in the lodge, the Sundance. And there was only half a dozen of us out there. There wasn't like a huge pile of white people. <laughs> so, um, so I went back to Grandpa Tom and said, "What, what am I going to do? I, you know, I've done all this preparation." And he he pointed to a ridge above the arbor and he said, "I'm going to put you up there. You're going to dance up there." And so I went up. We created a, a altar at one end and a little shaded area at the other, and I could hear the drum. And so I danced up on the ridge above the lodge the whole time. And um, long story short, during that time period, I 
fell to the ground on the third day, um, had a vision um, in the vision. And, and the, when I say a vision, it wasn't like a dream. Um, it was as real as me sitting in this room right mm -hmm. now, as far as like to me goes. Um, and that's the thing about visions. A lot of times, like how do you, some of the visions I've had are, are so it's kind of like Ted Abbott, right? Mm -hmm. Like this, he, right. was he a vision or was he real? Right. I don't know. But anyway, I had, um, two hawks, two red tail hawks came over, flew down, picked me up, took me to a cave. Um, one of them took the feathers of their tail out, showed me how to build a fan, talked to me about how to put medicine in to the fan. Um, and um for for healing um people mm -hmm. and so then kind of took me back to where i had been fasting and i felt like they dropped me and i felt like i hit the ground and i kind of woke up and um so i told grandpa tom about it and he said well the that's that's your spirit and that's your spirit animal and that will you'll start understanding that as you go along um I can probably tell you a hundred different stories about hawks and red tail hawks, but I know I always think of you they, when I see a hawk. <laughs> yeah. And people, um, I can feel the hawks. Like I'll be driving down the road and I'll just feel a hawk in the tree and people that travel with me will say, how do you do that? And I'm like, well, I just feel them and I can call them in. They'll show up every time I do a ceremony, they show up. Um, I eventually had, so, um, and, and so one other experience in connecting to that. And so this is how your spirit animal sometimes shows up. So you have a vision of it, but then, um, I was driving down the road. So then I, what I started doing after that is every time I would see a hawk on the side of the road, I'd pull over, take it off the road, leave a tobacco offering and make a prayer. Mm -hmm. And I did that for well over a couple of years after that particular Sundance incident. And I noticed the Hawks would show up in the sky and, and I was sort of honoring them. And then I picked one up in Virginia and I went to move and it was still alive. And so I took it into my truck, put it on the seat, was going to take it to a friend, see if we could, you know, doctor it or call somebody or whatever. And I suddenly got, sort of guide it to pull over the side of the road and I picked it up and laid it on my lap and it looked at me, flapped its wings once, made a cry and passed away. But at the same time, it felt like it went into my solar plexus and out the top of my head, mm -hmm. its spirit. And um, I literally was in an altered state for probably about four days after that. Wow. Um. And, you know, those are the kind of experiences when you start talking and working with the, the spirits and the land and everything is that it becomes, there's no separation. Like I'm a total white guy. I got all the intellectual stuff, but when I'm in ceremony, there's no separation between me and the natural world mm -hmm. and the spirit world. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and that's years of practice. That just doesn't come. That just doesn't, you know, it's fasting. Um, it's doing ceremony a lot. You know, you just don't, um, you know, I see that 
you know, shamanism 101 online mm-hmm. or some crazy thing like that. And that just drives me insane. I know. Because traditionally, it's a lifetime of practice. Um, it's guided by both spirit and elders. It's a lot of hard work. I wouldn't, you know, these are all like exciting stories. Um, but the work that it took to do this, right. the, the amount of fasting and ceremony and everything, and, and the times when I just wanted to stop and I cried on top of a mountain and, um, you know, everything hurt. And, you know, it's, it's not a path that I, that I would ever tell anybody to get on. Yes. I understand what you're you know, saying. I mean, it's, it, it's a lifetime, a life that you've devoted to study and respect of teachers and learning. It's not like you said, shamanism 101, you know, an online class you can take and a certification you can get. That's not how it works. Right. Well, you know, right. you, and- you said to me recently, um, actually it was on your birthday in December and you were back in Canada visiting family and we were on our, our group text and you said that you felt like you had reached a point or the point, I suppose, in your life where you felt that you were entering eldership. And you and I joke around a little bit about like, that, that I don't think that necessarily means like, it's like you retire at 65 or whatever, you know, it's like, it's like you re- reach a certain age and you're an elder, like it, spiritually speaking, that's not what we're referring to. But I'd, I'd love for you to talk about what, what it means now, this new phase of your life. You know, we've been talking about the studying that you've done and the teachers that you've had, but entering into eldership, what is, what is that? Well, so again, it doesn't, I don't think it has to do with age. Right. I have to think it has to do with experience. Um, I feel like now I just do. So it's not like I've stopped working on myself or I'm not having to still, I'm the kind of person that I want to keep growing. Mm-hmm. Like I joked that I'm going to, I want to live till I'm 120. Yeah. That's the Sagittarius and, in um, you, Wolf. <laughs> yeah. There's still so and much more for you fact, to explore. <laughs> I just started studying a new martial art uh, comes out of Tibet, you know, at 66 mm-hmm. and you know, it's a mystical sort of art and I'm like, Oh, I'm really excited about it. But but there's also this place in me where it's like, um, I feel like I can, like I have a lot of people that reach out to me now asking for guidance. And I've had that for a number of years cause you know, I've done a lot of ceremony and that sort of thing. But I feel like there's some point in which you reach where you kind of say, okay, I really do know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that I, when I was in ceremony, it wasn't questioning what I was doing, but it felt like I was still trying to understand what I was doing. And, 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 you know, maybe that's, um, maybe that's a little bit of that culture issue that one of the things I've had to struggle with over the years is, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, 100% 100% Scotch English Canadian white guy. I've got all this 
um, native training. I studied Taoism and Buddhism. I taught English in China and I met some elders there and I studied that. Um, and, and I've studied these other cultures and I even have went back and studied Christianity and my own Catholicism roots. Um, but there's always this thing about being a, an intellectual person, not living in, like I, I, I would do really well living in a tribal system and only living like mm -hmm. that versus living in the world that we live in and trying to find the balance with when are you in the spirit world and when it's appropriate and when it's not, right. and how do you balance it on a daily basis? And I think part of eldership is learning that that separation isn't there anymore. I don't feel like I have to, that I'm separate from the spirit world anymore, that I have to go do a ceremony to get in the spirit world. I feel like I walk it all the time. Mm, that's so beautiful. And what and a, I, what I, a place to arrive at, you know, especially being on, you know, the quote spiritual path for your life, you know, from that point when you were 10 years old and you hit your knee in front of the crucifix to, you know, all these years of study and prayer and learning to reach the point where there's no duality of here and there. You are living in both. Like that is home in my mind. That is the ultimate destination in this physical incarnation anyway, until we go back to spirit, right? Um, right. To be able to reach a point where you can exist in both places at once and simultaneously teach others and guide others on that path. Well, and I think that's the, you know, uh, I don't know if that's the goal of everybody, but, you know, I say, I joke, I have a, a granddaughter now. So I joke about wanting to be, um, live till I'm 120. And that's the reason. But on the other side of it, it is I have this kind of crazy complexity in my own head about, okay, well, I want to do that, but I'm also like, I'm really, really excited and curious about reaching a place in my life when the end has come and I get to transition and, and about what is the journey next? Mm -hmm. Like there's just so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm 66 and I just am so excited about both sides of life. Mm -hmm. And I think that to me is the balance of what I'm talking about, about living in the whole of the universe. Yes, I see that completely. And I agree with you. I think that's a beautiful place to land. Um, and you still have so much still to offer and are continuing, continuing to do and offer um, people on their path and on their spiritual walk. And I know that you, you have a book coming out. Can you, can you talk about that for a second? Well, I have a second book coming mm -hmm. out. I just published a poetry book called the ramblings of a mystic. And, and that's the thing I've been called a medicine man. I've been called a shaman. Um, and when I put this book out, the term mystic to me is one that kind of lives in that world. Um, I'm not in a tribe anymore. You know, I don't have a tribe. I don't have a, um, 
I've got a community, but it's not like a, a tribal community. At one time I did have that. And um, even though I'm guiding, I feel more like a mystic because I'm living in that kind of in between all the time now. Yeah. And I think and going so, back to your Pisces moon, that's, that's what the Pisces moon is. It's this watery, you know, um, I mean, that's what I think of when you, when you say that, that mystical, you know, that that's, that's your Pisces moon right there. Right. And so that one I published last year called Ramblings of a Mystic, and that's the poetry book. And then I've got a second, I've got two more that I'm working on. One's a, another poetry book, but this time it has sort of more mythic stories in it um, that have come to me during ceremonies. Um, you know, stories with lessons like you would normally get in, you know, the elders would tell stories to teach you something. And so I've got some of those going in. Um, and it's more of a story poetry book. And that one I hope to have out this year. And then the other one that I'm working on, which I don't quite have a title to yet. It's kind of my story, but it's more written in a, um, a novel-y way where, so it's not like, you know, I, I did this or I did that. It's more of a, a kind of a fun book where you just go on an adventure with this person through a spiritual journey of life. Well, so all the, that's certainly all been your story. Things, <laughs> yeah. So all the things that I've experienced, but it's not going to be specific to me. It's going to be more, um, more like a, a, a story that you just get into. And within the story of this young person that you kind of follow throughout um, as they grow um, in, in the idea of the mystical part of it, um, you there's lessons within each of the journey, right? Mm -hmm. So, well, I can't wait. And I don't know. I don't know when that'll get done. <laughs> okay. Well, I will keep everyone posted when, when we get closer to having a, a release date on that. So people can, can check it out and support you. Um, oh, so okay. I'd love to kind of close out with a couple rapid fire questions. And, and I'm really excited actually to hear your, hear your answers for these. So the first one is what do you think happens when we die? So I, I have a strong belief in um, reincarnation over the years of my experiences and just um, experiences. I did a lot of work with kids and, and I've met a lot of kids who can tell stories from their past life that there's just no way they would know. Mm -hmm. um, um, I believe that we have, we continue to transition. So I, I'll just give you a sort of a, a view. So I believe we break off from cre the creator, whatever that is. We come down to earth to grow towards um, a loving, more compassionate place. And I believe the creator is, is, you know, love and compassion. Those are just like, there's not a word for it. I'm going to make up a word one day that mm -hmm. makes Better it, explain it. pure love, mm -hmm. right? We come down and we kind of stand, land in the middle and then we have a choice on what we do. And we can go one direction, which is, can be hell, which was my drug and alcohol days. Mm -hmm. And then we, if we start doing our work, we kind of come back to the middle and then we can kind of stay there. And if we keep working on the spiritual path, we work 
kind of towards not so much heaven, but more like the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. like the idea that we are connected to everything and we have everything we need. And then when we die, we transition to what I call the spirit world. And we kind of have to maybe do some more work there. And then we transition back into um, this world again, do more work. And we keep going through this cycle until we've gotten to the point where we are back to being close to that idea of love, loving compassion. Mm -hmm. And then we go back and merge with the creator spirit. And there's this kind of cycle that happens that keeps that whole universe energy creator alive. It's got to be. Um, and that that's the purpose is um, almost like we are, we have to grow to a point where we go back and feed the creator again. So the creator can stay in existence and there's this back and forth. I actually had in one of my ceremonies where I left my body, I floated up to something that all I can describe is as a, as a white, as a big light. It looked like an amoeba with lots of little souls in it. And when I touched it, I got slammed back down to the ground. And when I came to, I just had this overwhelming feeling. And again, there's just isn't a word that it was just absolutely pure essence of love. I don't. And to me, that's the creator. Right. I agree. But I think there's a transition in between that we have to go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and I love that description of it kind of being a cycle and, you know, almost a purification too. I guess maybe that's not the greatest word, but, you know, I always think about releasing karma and, or whatever you want to call it. And, and, you know, each lifetime it has the potential to get us closer or farther away, you know, from doing that. Um, so yeah. what about, do you believe in aliens? So, you know, that's an interesting question. So I have, I have, when I was on the road, I had some experiences where I saw some things in the sky, lights and stuff that moved in weird directions and everything. And uh, I, the only thing I can describe them as is possible like ships mm -hmm. moving. They just didn't move like anything that I'd ever seen before. And, um, and then have, you know, I believe in the spirit world and I believe in, I, it's hard for me to look up into the sky and the universe and see all the stars and believe that we are the only species that exists in the whole universe. Mm -hmm. Although I haven't had, an ex direct experience around that. So, um, so I'm still on the, I'll wait and see. Yeah. Page. I think that's been the <laughs> consensus from most of my guests is everybody's like, you know, I I'm open to the idea that we're not all completely alone, you know, that, that there has to be, but, um, but I'm not sure it's like the little green men coming out of, you know, um, flying saucers necessarily. So, Awesome. Well, Wolf, I have to tell you that, you know, this was such an incredible conversation to have today. And I learned a lot about you that I didn't know already. And I feel like there's so much more we could talk about. And I think maybe we need to plan for when you come up to Charleston this summer that we sit down and we record a second part because you're just a wealth of 
incredible information and stories and and there's a lot more I'd like to have you share if you're willing. So I think we need to plan for a part two. Sure, that'd be fine. Awesome. Well, thank you, Wolf. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for being here. <laughs>